Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. This week on Babel, John speaks with Olivia Lazard about climate change and climate adaptation in the Middle East. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Olivia Lazard is a visiting scholar at Carnegie Europe, where she focuses on the geopolitics of climate and the transitions ushered by climate change. She worked for several years providing research, evaluation, and support services for humanitarian and development actors in conflict zones. Olivia, welcome to Babel. Hi, John. Very nice to be here. What are the most concerning examples of climate change that you're seeing in the Middle East? Well, we're seeing some right now in Sudan, right? All of the issues around droughts and inundations, it's essentially some of the recurring stories that we see every summer and at various periods of the year, every year now, where the Middle East and more largely the MENA region suffer from increasing levels of temperatures. Even if we were to manage to stay at a 1.5 degree Celsius increase, the Middle East and the North African regions would still experience essentially substantial rise in temperatures, which would mean more drought, more issues around access to water, qualitative water. And we often see this intersequence, right? When you have drought somewhere, you also have massive inundations, and it's going to have some very large impacts on the way in which people reorganize themselves in terms of livelihoods, in terms of human security, in terms of access to health, and in terms of their relationship with their government as well. So as you look around the region, what sorts of political and social impacts do you see climate change causing? Well, it depends on every context, because essentially what we're currently seeing still is that climate change exacerbates pre-existing social fractures and socioeconomic fractures and political economic fractures. But we're seeing a lot of issues around livelihoods destitution. We're seeing more and more of tensions between the central states and different territories that are particularly hard hit by climate change. So if you're in the capital, for example, in Amman, in Jordan, you're likely to experience some issues well throughout the year, but it's likely that your state services will be a lot more accessible and that you will have essentially a speed of action which will be a lot more rapid compared to places in the northern part of the country in Mafrak or Erbid, for example, where you have some populations which are hosting a lot of refugees coming from different parts of the region. There's increasing pressure on water resources, increasing pressure also on food and health services. All of this create tensions between host and displaced or refugee communities which in some cases can lead to violence. And it's not that we can attribute everything to climate disruptions, because there are some issues that have to do with the way in which social services are just not extended to populations at large. And over time, what we're observing is essentially that because there are more and more stresses associated with access to energy, access to food, access to water, we're experiencing more and more fragmentation of social fabrics and more tensions between people and between people and their government. 
the more mistrust there is within the ability of a central state to provide security and state services and social security, the more there's likely to be territorial marginalization, identity marginalization, social marginalization that then lead to more serious forms of violence, including violent extremism, terrorism, and downright conflicts between people and their state. And you've written about how climate change contributed to the Arab Spring, which essentially represented wars within countries. Have you seen examples of climate change prompting wars between countries, or do you foresee wars between countries over climate-related issues, or do you think this is mostly going to be an internal stressor? I think we're only on the cusp of many different versatile systemic and profound disruptions. Some of them will only play out at local levels, but I can already envisage that there would be different types of stressors that may lead over time to potential conflicts between states, even though we have to be very careful about that type of foresight because we never know, right? So there are a number of factors playing out. We can have a look at Ethiopia and Egypt, for example, over the construction of the Grand Renaissance Dam. Ethiopia has been filling the dam recently. There's been a lot of tensions and a lot of negotiations happening within the UN, between the various countries' tributaries of the Nile, and yet there is no resolution per se. There is essentially a show of force by Ethiopia saying that they want to develop on a significant scale their economy on the basis of this mega infrastructure. And the problem here are international infrastructure is lags behind in its understanding of what we're up against. We fail to understand essentially some fundamental ecological interdependencies that regulate the hydrological cycle worldwide. So in the case of the Nile, one of the things that we've missed out upon is the fact that 40% of rains falling on Ethiopian highlands actually come from the central African basin, particularly from the eastern part of the Democratic Republic of Congo, where if you look at what's happening in the eastern parts of the Congo, you have significant manifestations of conflict. There are a number of different infrastructures which are in in planification mode, where a lot of different actors are thinking of constructing roads, railways, airports, and other types of infrastructure, which is going to fragment essentially the ecological integrity of the Congo Basin. And the more we deforest the Congo Basin, the less rain will come to the Ethiopian highlands. Naturally, and this is a simple sort of equation, if less rains come to the Ethiopian highlands, Ethiopia will eventually want to keep more and more of it for its own irrigation systems within the country. And it's likely that the Nile will actually experience a state of ecological weakening, which will affect downstream tributaries of the Nile significantly. The problem is that at this point, we have no timeline, right? We don't know if some issues may come up within the next five years, 10, 15. We can, the more we anticipate problems, the more likely we're going to be able to maintain a sense of security. And for the moment, and I'm not seeing fundamental rethinking about how to integrate massive regeneration projects that can help to stabilize the hydrological cycle along the Nile, so as to help development infrastructure in Ethiopia to make sure that Egypt doesn't run out of water eventually. Of course, Egypt is hosting 
COP27 in November. Yeah. The UAE is hosting COP28. What do you expect to come out of these Middle East COP meetings that will be specifically relevant to the Middle East? It's a good question because obviously COP27 happens on the back of the Ukraine war, which has sent energy markets in complete disarray over the last six months or so. And we've seen a number of Middle Eastern powers, including the UAE, Saudi Arabia, rise up to preeminence in diplomatic terms again and regain a lot of bargaining chips on international energy markets. And so I expect essentially a number of Middle Eastern countries to keep on playing this role to say, well, fossils are still going to play a massive role within the international energy system. And since we need to acknowledge this and work with this reality, the next best available option is to invest more massively into carbon capture systems and geoengineering. And this is what we've been seeing, for example, on the part of the UAE and Saudi Arabia in the past. Egypt has a potential card to play, and I'm not entirely sure yet if it is going to play it. But the interesting thing about Egypt is that it's one of the countries that has been looking at ecosystems-based regeneration, particularly for the Sinai Peninsula, to try and regenerate over the next 10 to 15 years the entire Sinai Peninsula with the hope that it would essentially reboot what we call ecological services in terms of distribution of rainfall and stabilization of the hydrological cycle, and that it would help to stabilize essentially weather systems in this particular crescent area, but also all the way up to Central Asia. So it's a new type of innovation. It's not the type of tech innovation that we hear a lot about, and that particularly strong financially affluent Middle Eastern states tend to bank upon or their future. But if Egypt were to put this forward as a massive flagship project that it wants to work upon in the future, then it would open up conversations which are a lot more grounded in the reality of the Middle East as well for the future. Meaning, how do you start solving or how do you start working essentially on fundamental insecurity drivers and roots of socioeconomic marginalization going through the vessel of ecological regeneration, which is something that I find is a very promising type of pathway, which is currently vastly underexplored and which deserves a lot more attention. So I'm hoping that Egypt will bring this to the fore at COP27 and that this will create a, a complementary type of conversation. And Egypt, of course, has been investing a lot in solar. It's been investing a lot in wind. Do you think that that those sorts of investments are enough to move the needle, or is Egypt still committed to a carbon-based energy production system? What we're seeing across the board in the world is essentially that there is a stacking up of different energy sources because there are more and more requests for energy on the whole. So even if there are more and more increases in solar, wind, potentially in hydrogen in some places, it doesn't mean that fossils are yet going down in terms of production and in terms of consumption. In the case of Egypt, it's not you know, a country that I know well in terms of its energy infrastructure mapping. But I can imagine that there are some places which are very well connected from an energy perspective and some which are not. And this is something that essentially we need to keep on watching in the future of the 
things where the buck will stop in terms of decarbonization is how well we plan an inclusive energy grid, one which is able to service different peoples, different regions and different communities across territories, and how we organize supply chains to essentially create a grid which is going to be strong enough. Now, there is also another thing which I find is an interesting sort of potential structural factor at play, which is that, as we all know, the European Union has needed review its decarbonization process as a result of the war in Ukraine. And in May, it published its international strategy for the Repower EU. Parts of the international strategy now has a very strong focus on what we call the EU's neighborhood, particularly North Africa. And there is now a very strong intent on the part of the European Union to take the North African region and parts of the Mediterranean basin along its own transition pathway and decarbonization pathway and to bank upon the creation of green hydrogen technologies and installations of infrastructure to try and power the region itself, but also the energy needs in Europe. Now, the reason why I say that this may be an interesting thing to look at is that we are on the cusp of this change. And rather than focus on the part which is a good news, essentially a sort of co-investment of Europe with North African and partly Middle Eastern countries into the energy transition, once again, we need to sort of disaggregate factors in details and we need to ensure that as we start this process, particularly in the European Union, there is a very strong attention paid to how the political economy of energy creation of decarbonized energy systems plays out in each and every country, right? Because we don't want to fall back into a system where by pumping a lot of money in, in North African and Middle Eastern countries, we actually strengthen political economies, which strengthen elite at the expense of a larger social good and a larger stabilization of security conditions in those countries. We need to essentially sort of combine energy, financial, economic thinking, along with socioeconomic inclusivity, governance, and stabilization of political economic systems in this region. And there's one issue with Europe and the Mediterranean basin, but a lot of the energy in, in the world is coming out of the Gulf. And a lot of the Gulf states have been exploring remaining energy producers, but shifting from the current fossil fuels to other kinds of renewable energy and green hydrogen and things like that. How do you judge the possibility of the world's current energy exporters remaining energy exporters through the energy transition? It's a very good question. The part that concerns me most about Gulf countries is their penchant for carbon capture systems at the moment, and therefore banking on a prolonged ability to pump fossil fuels into the atmosphere, because this is where the financial flows come from at the moment. And they seem to have a fairly strong faith into technologies that we know have yet to come into existence and prove their effectiveness to be fully accountable and powerful in avoiding climate breakdown. I 
do believe, however, that again, if we look at Saudi Arabia, if we look at Dubai, if we look at Qatar, there is an interest and a curiosity about trying to invest early into other types of energy systems. The thing that will essentially make or break the ability of these countries to provide energy is the type of supply chains that they rely upon. One of the things that we know is that in the case of the MENA region, we have very, very few no deposits for the critical minerals that we need in order to create the green techs that we need, so the panels with turbines, batteries, et cetera, et cetera. For now, a lot of these supply chains are concentrated at extraction and processing level in China, mostly, and in Asia. And depending essentially on the reliability of supply chains going forward, then we will be able to judge how qualitatively and effectively Gulf countries will be able to essentially deploy renewable systems in their own territories and therefore deploy renewable energy systems strong enough to keep on providing the energy to other parts of the world, which are still going to be more concentrated from a geographical perspective, right? We're not going to talk about a transition where Saudi Arabia will be able to export electricity to the US, for example. And this is the interesting thing as well about you know this, this change of energy system. We have to look at grid integration and how it may foster essentially different types of conversation between neighbors that at times may have tensions with one another. So there are lots of things that will determine the future and quality of energy creation and provision from the Gulf to radiating regions. And I'm not entirely sure that I can pronounce myself just yet on how well it's going to play out. Do you think there are any Middle Eastern countries that are doing particularly well, either pursuing decarbonization or preparing for climate change? No. <laughs> no is my short answer. If I extend to the MENA region, then I would say that the one country which seems to be a bit more forward thinking would be Morocco, even though technically... Middle Eastern and North African countries tend to keep on understanding the climate crisis mostly as a carbon problem. If I look at the case of Morocco, for example, they retain a lot of extractive industries, including phosphorus, which break other types of ecological interdependencies, which keep on breaking also the hydrological cycle and things like this. It's not just the MENA region or Middle Eastern countries that um, are underplaying the threats that we're facing. I think that we collectively as an international community are not fully understanding the type of ecological disruptions that are coming our way and how much actually the energy transition should be used to change business as usual and to rethink territorial governance, administration, political economic distribution, inclusivity, governance systems, et cetera, et cetera. So to me, this is not just a matter of accelerating as fast as possible towards decarbonization. It's a matter of doing that, but also very much sort of, you know, rethinking, okay, so what are, since we're going to be one of the most affected regions when it comes to climate disruptions, particularly this interplay between drought, fires and inundations, are we investing into the right type of climate adaptation? Knowing that there is a huge question mark as to what 
fundamentally climate adaptation looks like. It's not just about elevating bridges, for example, when you have inundations. It's not just about better insulating buildings. It's not just about switching from air conditioning to a different type of territories are going to change. The whole thing about climate change is that it's undermining the way in which natural resources have been distributed and located for hundreds of years across the biosphere, right? And if we don't manage to integrate essentially this notion of how will landscapes behave? How can we help them to become more resilient? How can we change our economies as well to try and sort of make sure that we're not heightening our vulnerability? Then we're not having the right type of conversation at all in terms of preparing for the very near future, if not the downright present. So in your mind, what role do Western governments have prodding Middle Eastern governments in particular to behave differently? And and what should the most important areas of emphasis be as the US and Europe and parts of, of Northeast Asia try to move Middle Eastern governments in a different direction? The first responsibility of the parts of the world that you've just mentioned is to accelerate as cohesively, comprehensively, systemically towards their own transition first. And this is not something that we're fully seeing yet, but it's still not enough. We're still not doing enough in Europe either. And there's still a lot of things that need to happen, not just on the energy side, but on the food side. In the case of the Middle Eastern and, again, North African region as well, which I understand as being an extended bioregion of its own, I think that there is a lot of discussions that European powers and the European Union can have with this region of the world, starting with how do we recomplexify food production systems. When I say recomplexify, it sounds like a very fancy word, but what it means is actually very simple. Our global food system is organized around monocultures. Monocultures tend to provide reliable crops and it helps in terms of international market mechanisms because there are specific type of staples that provide sense of financial basis and monetary basis for world markets. The problem with monocultures is that, one, they're extremely climate vulnerable and they create drought. Drought is not just the result of climate change. Drought leads to climate change because it actually impoverishes soils, releases carbon into the atmosphere, decreases the ability of soil to retain water, and therefore to retain soil biodiversity, which is essential to the nutritional component of our food system. The more we try to shift away from monocultures and therefore regain essentially an understanding, a knowledge and a capacity to recover indigenous seeds in different regions of the world, to cultivate them and to move towards much more diverse agricultural systems, not just in terms of crops, but therefore in terms of economic systems, the more we're likely to essentially increase the ability of ecologically depleted countries such as North African and Middle Eastern ones to weather climate disruptions coming their way, 
to bring back water on their lands and to bring back a sense of resilience, which is associated to food stability. And even though I know that this is a very complex endeavor, it actually remains one of the lowest hanging fruits in the fight against climate change, even more so than energy. And I think I will always remember COP26, I heard the sentence that stuck with me from this high-ranking official from the World Bank. He said, for the change and transformation of our energy systems, we have a North Star, right? We know that we need to decarbonize and to bring more renewable sources of energy into our energy mix. But for food systems, we don't have this North Star. There are many ways in which we can move towards regenerative food systems and that it can help essentially in the process of bringing more stability, more resilience in the age of climate disruptions, and how from there, it's almost a simple kind of thinking, even though it's a complex process. But if you rethink food systems, you have to rethink the relationship between capital and rural hinterlands or urban and rural hinterlands. You have to rethink the notion of mobility. You have to rethink the relationship and socioeconomic inclusiveness of governance. And you have to rethink essentially the way in which people value their own cultures. And the more we regain that, the more we also create different types of conversations for diplomatic engagements between countries that are about valuing differences in regions and their ability to collectively rise up to the challenge of climate resilience. Olivia Ozard, thank you very much for joining us on Babel. Thank you so much, John. Thanks. Next, John, Natasha, and I continue the conversation about what this all means for the Middle East. During the interview, Olivia Lazard talked about how we need to be thinking more broadly and holistically about the climate and the difficult policy decisions and transition that is going to come along with that kind of rethinking. How do you think a policymaker in Washington, D.C. is going to respond to that kind of argument? The first question is, how do you make the politics of that kind of change work? And, and one of the things we saw in the United States from the what was called the Inflation Reduction Act, but actually had a lot of, of the Biden administration's climate policy in it, was building a political coalition to get these kinds of changes, getting the acquiescence or agreement, let alone enthusiastic embrace by a whole set of stakeholders who have an interest in the system precisely the way it operates now is really hard. And, I, and it seems to me that it's great to have that sort of goal, but boiling it down to an actionable, implementable policy is a whole different set of tasks. And I think a lot of that change is going to be a lot slower than it needs to be given for those kinds of changes given how ambitious the targets are to reduce carbon emissions and given how many different processes are involved in producing carbon emissions. Yeah, I mean, I think taking a, a little bit of a, a step back, though, I mean, there is the the issue of climate change. Uh, there was a recent IMF report that showed that the Middle East has been heating up twice as fast as the global average. Most of the most water-stressed countries in the world are in you know the Middle East and North Africa, but this is, as Olivia Lazard was pointing out, climate change is man-made crises. 
unsustainable resource management for decades has put this vicious cycle into overdrive. So I think what Olivia was pointing out is that, for example, in Iraq, where you have the abandonment of agricultural farms, this leaves the land barren and unplanted, which puts desertification of the Basra region in the south in overdrive. And that in turn contributes to climate change and an increase in temperatures. What Olivia is saying, and she's quite right to say it, is that there needs to be a much more holistic approach to this vicious cycle. Is climate change mitigation necessary in terms of driving down the importance of fossil fuels? Yes, but we're at the point in the Middle East where adaptation and environmental regeneration is are absolutely vitally essential. I think in the case of D.C. at least, this is just not necessarily a priority the way it should be. And I think part of that is because it's really, really hard when you have a region that's in turmoil. But it's it's also because we continue to treat the symptoms of these deeper root causes of turmoil and instability in the region, rather than getting to the bottom of, of some of these issues when it comes to just providing basic services. But a lot of the basic services problem is a population issue. Right. Egypt has one set of issues when it has 30 million people, another set of issues when it has 100 million people. Egypt has one set of issues when the farmland is being farmed and another set of issues when the farmland is used to build housing settlements in the Delta and around Cairo. It seems to me that one of the things she was talking about is getting away from monocrop agriculture and all those sorts of things, which is a great idea but extraordinarily hard to implement in practice. And as you rightly point out, the Middle East has a lot of really profound problems and is suffering from climate change more than most regions of the world. And yet most of the solution set within our lifetimes is gonna have to come not from a change in agricultural practices to reduce carbon emissions, but rather from adaptation strategies to deal with the fact that the farm belt around Cairo that used to keep dust out of the city and everything else is now housing. And that's true throughout the region. I think that, that it's one thing to have a region that is largely agricultural, but the economies of the region are not driven by agricultural production, and a diminishing part of the labor force is involved in agriculture. And I think that that means that we're dealing with a different solution set in the region than we might have been dealing with 70 years ago before anybody was thinking about climate. Right. In a lot of these countries, the GDP percentage of agriculture is very low, right? 6% or lower. But the percentage of the labor force that contributes to agriculture is something like a fourth. And in countries like Jordan, where you're facing something like 50% youth unemployment, and you're trying to bring down a bloated public sector, thinking about how you're going to absorb this population, as John rightly points out, is a really, really challenging endeavor for the next decade or even the next just few years. And realistically, Jordan still imports agricultural labor, despite all of the, the employment statistics you cite, which are accurate. But the idea that agriculture is going to be what absorbs these large numbers of young people looking for jobs, I think that's not going to happen 
either. So we have to find solution set, which is partly about how people farm and partly about different kinds of crops that can deal with increased salinity, diminished water, all those kinds of things, find ways to recycle water and use gray water and, and agriculture. I mean, it's going to be a, a large solution set, but it does seem to me that thinking about profoundly changing the way we do industrial agriculture and moving it toward small-scale farming with lots of crop rotation, all those things, while that's desirable, it's going to be hard to implement in a Middle East context in the near term. And the solution set, as I say, is going to have to come from a whole set of small things that try to contribute toward moving the larger whole in a better direction. You both just laid out the difficult path that Middle East countries have when they try to combat climate change and how they're going to need to adapt. How do you think that Middle Eastern states are thinking about this in the short term with all of the problems that they're already facing? This seems like a longer term problem, but they have some short term problems as well. I think it's difficult when you're dealing with very fragile political system. I mean, you have a lot of diversity in terms of wealth in the region for one. But if we're looking at a place like Lebanon, Iraq, or Jordan, varying levels of stability, but all facing these very existential problems. I think the issue is that, again, they're dealing with very immediate security and instability issues. And Western governments and the international community tends to try, if they're going to deal with anything at this point, they're dealing with those very immediate concerns. And the notion of having to sort of undermine what these economies are based on, which would be very necessary in order to really tackle these issues, is a seemingly overwhelming endeavor. I mean, just from the perspective of Jordan and water, which is a, obviously a very big consideration for, for Jordan as one of the most water-stressed countries in the world, you know, they've done this, this job of, of trying to tackle illegal water extraction and things like that. But at the end of the day, you still have sort of high import taxes on water intensive crops, for example, right? And so that is a policy that is creating more water stress for Jordan. So no matter how much they try to tackle sort of the corruption at the lower level, it's going to be very difficult for them to maintain sort of political support and the very fragile balance that they have in Jordan when they start going after the big fish and the people that have been sort of the core supporters of, of the monarchy. And I think you see so, sort of elements of that throughout the region where you have vested interests in Iraq and vested interests in Lebanon and, and no one really wants to step on their toes to move real reform, I think, forward. We might have some real reform. I think a lot of the countries that have larger agricultural sectors, both in terms of, of parts of the economy, in terms of employment, places like Morocco and Egypt, I think are going to turn to the Gulf and look for support. The interesting thing to me is, is our countries like the UAE, which has put a huge premium on food security, as an issue, is very interested in renewable energy as an issue, are they going to help nudge or are they going to prioritize nudging regional governments in exchange for financial assistance? Are they also going to try to transform the agricultural sectors or are they going to decide this is about politics, this is about leading families, we're not going to get involved in that aspect of things 
they'll shell out money until such time as the economic environment doesn't lead them to feel they can continue to shell out the money or that it's not a good investment. Ultimately, as Natasha points out, the patterns of wasting water, the patterns of having agriculture be a place where wealthy people monopolize water and make more money is a profound political problem, not just in the Middle East, in the American West, in California. That's the way California politics have worked for more than 100 years. And this is a hard problem to untangle. Again, having money from the Gulf gives you a potential way to mitigate it in the near term. Ultimately, the problem has to be economic and agricultural and political. And to me, the interesting question is, will the major aid donors, and I think the Gulf is going to be a more significant aid donor than the United States over the next 20 years in the Middle East, will these major aid donors in the Gulf decide that there's an imperative to help transform the way agriculture works in these countries or not? Right, because I think as of now, and we and we talked about this a bit in our report, Sustainable States, that the temptation, because there isn't this sort of government-led, there's a bit of government-led reform, I shouldn't say that there isn't, but this sort of holistic, more comprehensive approach that Olivia Lazard is talking about, there's a temptation to look at the grassroots level and sort of entrepreneurial projects in some of these countries like Lebanon or Jordan or even Iraq. And that has its limitations. You know, there are donors like GIZ and AFD. So these are the sort of the US aids of, of France and Germany that have done really phenomenal work in the region over the years. But it is typically at a sort of a lower level. And that gets you sort of so far, but then you need to reach the point of, of sort of policy implementation and regulation to really get things, I think, moving. And I really do hope Gulf countries are able to provide some of the, the really necessary resources to make that happen over the years. Yeah, Natasha, I'm glad that you brought up sustainable states because that report kind of talked about how you might build more trust in government and trust among the population through the provision of sustainable services like water, electricity, and waste management. And Olivia Lazard was talking about this kind of breaking the almost the social contract, the way it's been thought of in the Middle East, these large changes we might make to governance. So I was wondering if there are any things that you took away from the research for sustainable states that might show how that might be done a little bit more concretely. To me, one of the interesting pieces about renewables, especially when it comes to electricity, is you shift the financial structure and require greater capital investment and much lower maintenance costs. So you can find somebody to pay for the capital investment up front, your ongoing maintenance costs, your ongoing costs of electricity provision can really go down. Other ways in which we also profiled a, a water purification project in Jordan, which also had a capital investment cost up front and then diminished operating costs down the line. Can Middle Eastern states use this moment when the Gulf is relatively flush, when governments are interested in preserving stability in the Middle East to make the capital investments now that give you much more sustainable public services going forward. 
I don't think the governments have made the case yet, but we have COP27 being hosted in Egypt in November. We have COP28 being hosted in the UAE. Both are about renewable energy. Egypt is very serious about both solar and wind. Are there ways to seize this moment and get investment in the region in a way that shifts the financial model to we'll make the capital investment while we can, and then we'll reap the benefits of lower cost energy and other things going forward. One of the challenges, by the way, is that if you have solar water pumps, you can actually extract groundwater at almost no cost. And that actually, on the water side, could make the region's problems more difficult rather than less difficult. Well, John and Natasha, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Caleb. Thanks, Caleb. Thanks for listening to Babel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast. Thank you.